Good morning. Hope you're doing well today. Um, it is fall in Texas. That means nothing. But we are glad you're here. So this behind me, I'm going to get this exactly right. Jean-Francois Gravelet. So much better than my muddled Texas version was going to be. I, I had to practice that this week. But he was born in France. He moved to the United States of America in the 1850s, and he was well known as an acrobat. And in 1959, he became the very first person in the history of the world, at least known, to walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. 1,100 feet. Just for a frame of reference, I think from the back of the auditorium to the front is about 100 feet, right? 94. Just ask Jake. But he travels across this tightrope, and over the course of his life, he did this feat over 300 times. And after the first time, he began to intensify the difficulty of this walk. And he would do things like stop and take pictures on the middle of the, the rope. He took a chair out there. He sat down and had a mill over the falls on a rope. He pushed a wheelbarrow across the rope. And then probably one of his most famous, he got his manager, Henry Colcord, on his back and walked across the falls. And for me, that seemed pretty crazy to trust someone enough to put your life on their back and walk across a two-inch rope hundreds of feet above Niagara Falls. And, and as crazy as that feat sounds, and the trust that's required to actually go through with it, could you imagine if on this day, they're walking across, and about halfway across, Henry, his manager, says, wait, stop, 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 stop. I want to get down. Because I think I would be better equipped. I have a better chance of making it across if I just go on my own. And we would probably say something like, that's stupid. All right, I'm sorry, I said the S word, children. <laughs> but there's, there's nothing else you can say, right? It's foolish, it's dumb. And we would look at it and say, what in the world are you thinking? How in the world could you think that you possibly have a better chance than with him? With Gravelet, who's made it. He actually changed his name once he got here um, to Charles Blondin, which sounds really American, right? 
How in the world could you think that would be better? And what Paul is really getting on to the Galatians for is because they've started this journey trusting and putting their faith in Christ. And it seems like halfway there, they're kind of like, wait, stop, I think I can do better. Let's grab the law. And let's, let's go back to obedience and trusting in our obedience to save us. And they're contemplating, should we, should we get circumcised? Should, should we pull the law back in and make it our means to salvation? And I think Paul would say to them, that's pretty foolish. That's pretty dumb. But my guess is he would probably say the same thing to us as well. Because my assumption about you is that you struggle with the tension of feeling like we are saved in Christ versus we got to do this on our own. And the reason I assume that about you is because I know it's true about me. That I constantly ask the question, am I good enough? Am I doing enough to make God love me? Am I doing enough to be right with Him? Because I think all of us in our nature struggle. Because the message of the gospel in some ways sounds too good to be true. This message that Jesus has come to save us just simply by putting faith and trust in Him sounds too good to be true. And so here's what Paul says to them, starting in verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Right? You're, you're walking across and like, wait, 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 I, I think I would be better equipped to handle the situation. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? This is the only time that word right there is used in the New Testament. Um, and it actually means like to cast a spell on someone. Who has bewitched, who's cast a spell on you? Before your very eyes... Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, you have to kind of understand, this book is written probably around 49 A.D. I think it's really close and in line with the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And so this has been, what, 15 plus years since Jesus was crucified. Or 10 plus years since Jesus was crucified. So... They probably weren't around in Jerusalem during the time when Jesus was crucified. They probably didn't see it with their own eyes. But what Paul is saying, I came here, I came to these churches in Galatia, and I preached the message about what Jesus has done on the cross for you, how he laid his life down and was crucified. And I know you've seen that with your eyes. 
And then he kind of sets the tone for the rest of this chapter with these rapid-fire rhetorical questions. Going on verse 2, he says this. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So I ask again, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing in what you heard? And he starts to ask these questions. How is it that you came to faith in Christ? Was it because you believed the message of the gospel? Or was it because you were doing everything right? That you were being obedient to the law? How is it that you came to faith? And and he does this by creating some contrast. Believing and observing the law. um, Then with the spirit and with human effort. And he has these contrasts, right? You you can either live life with the Spirit guiding you, or you can live life by your own effort. You don't get to do both. You have to choose what you're going to trust and put your hope in. Is it Christ? This is literally it. Is it Christ that you hope in? Or is it yourself? You, you get to choose. Is it Christ? Or is it yourself? And then it seems like he makes this really awkward transition. So he goes from that. He says, so, also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he goes from talking about the gospel, talking about this foolish thinking, to now bringing in Abraham, who lived thousands of years before Paul, before Jesus. And a little about Abraham's journey. Abraham's journey began when God called him to leave his family, to leave his people, to leave everything he knows, and go to a place that he was going to show him. And the promise in that was he was going to make him into a great nation and he was going to bless the world through Abraham if he would have the faith to leave. And so Abraham does. He goes. But Abraham, over time, starts to notice something that seems to be problematic for someone who's going to be a great nation. God... I don't have any kids. I don't see your promise being fulfilled. And God tells him, Abraham, I am your strength. I am your reward. Trust me. And what's what's really cool in that passage is it seems like when Abraham is talking to God, he's inside his tent. 
And God says to him, hey, come outside. Come outside. Because inside, I think his vision is restricted. He brings him outside of the tent. And he says, I want you to just look up at the stars in the sky. Your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, for, for a guy who's getting up there in age and still doesn't have kids, that would seem like a pretty easy place to doubt. Wait, I, I don't see what you promised happening. I don't see your promises being fulfilled. I don't see them coming true. Abraham, come outside. Come outside. Look up. See the stars. Your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the very next line, the author says this, that Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. But for Abraham, you have to understand this wasn't just a cognitive exercise. This wasn't just a belief or a knowledge. It was a willingness to act and live as if you believed it was true. It, it was the question, are you really willing to take the next step and follow me? I, I would imagine it would just be like um, blonde and when he gets on the rope asking his manager to get on his back right. do, do you trust that I can make it across then, then hop on my back do you really trust and will your actions reflect that trust so it wasn't just this intellectual faith it was faith is belief expressed in action. And, and that's what he says, that is righteousness. Like, live as if it is true. Even though you're still waiting to see it fulfilled. Even though you're still waiting for that promise. And that's what he's saying. Faith in the gospel is that belief. That what God is doing in this world, that the victory that God has won through Christ is true. And do you have the faith and trust to believe it and to follow? Right? That our life is a depiction of the gospel. Right? The way we live our life is a reflection of that belief. And it's so easy, I think, for us to trust in the gospel for salvation, right? We, we trust that God is going to save us. But I think we struggle in the obedience side, in the transformation side. Yes, we trust that God's going to save us, but do you trust that God's going to transform you? Because I think so much of our life, that's where it goes back to that human effort. Now, not really believing and trusting that God's going to change and transform us. See, and I think you're going to ask the question, but doesn't the gospel require 
Obedience. Doesn't it require obedience? And I think Paul would say this. No. The gospel doesn't require... We've been down that road. Right? You remember Ezra and Nehemiah? We're going to follow. We're going to do everything it says. We're going to sign. We're in. And they don't. They struggle. The good news of the gospel is not that you have to get it right. The gospel doesn't require obedience. The gospel produces obedience. The gospel requires surrender. Right? The gospel requires us saying, God, I can't do this on my own. The gospel requires saying, God, I can't trust in my righteousness because it's not a righteousness. It's an unrighteous life. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to surrender everything I have to you. The gospel doesn't require obedience. It produces it in us as our life takes on the image of Christ. And it transforms us. And it changes us. Because I feel like for so long, the message that we've given to the world outside watching us is change your life. Get everything right. And then you can come follow Jesus with us. But I think the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, is an entirely different message. It's not change and you can follow Jesus. It's follow Jesus and you're going to be changed. Right? Is it, is it the human effort? Or is it the power and the work of the Spirit within you? See, because I know, I know we're going to want to say, well, but, well, no, obedience is important. No, it is. But you have to understand where that obedience comes from. It doesn't come from you. We've been down that road. We've been down that road from the very, very beginning. And no matter how hard we try, it doesn't seem to be enough. And Paul's telling them, hey, you began trusting in the work of Christ. And now you're into this journey, and you're saying, wait, 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 wait. God got us most of the way. Now we're going to get the rest of the way. The gospel requires surrender. It requires you laying down your life and we are buried with him into his righteousness and we take on his righteousness
right? That, that we don't have this righteousness of our own. It's only a righteousness through Christ. Right? We, we want the obedience thing. But Paul's saying, hey, that's the curse of the law. Right? And I, I'm setting you free from the curse of the law. Because just looking at our track record, we hadn't been real good at keeping the law. And so I want you to find faith and hope and trust in Christ. Right? We're buried into Jesus' faithful obedience. And we take on His righteousness by surrender. And in doing that, it produces this righteousness, this, I'm sorry, produces this obedience that flows out of our life, out of this love for Christ. So he goes on, verse 7, he says this, understand, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. This is going back thousands of years that he's announcing the good news of the gospel, that, that there is a Messiah who's going to come and be a blessing, and through this Messiah, you will be a blessing in this world. He's announcing in advance the gospel to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This, this journey with Abraham the father of the Jewish people. And if you have faith in Christ, you're a son, an heir of that promise. And we're going to really, really dive into what that means next week. But it's this idea that the family of, of Abraham goes far beyond just blood. Right? It's not about nationality. It's not about where you were born or who, whose father. It is about being a part of God's redeemed people. For all, verse 10, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. So why does he begin this chapter by calling the Galatians fools? Because they're doing the same thing that we've done for centuries. No, I got this. I think for me, that was what was so comical about Ezra and Nehemiah. Is I kept seeing myself in the story. Right? That, that resolve, like, no, this time, this time I'm going to do it. And yet we fell. And that's why Paul's asking. What exactly 
Are you trusting Him? Are you trusting in your ability to be good enough to win the favor of Christ so that He would see you righteous? Or are you willing to surrender and trust in the righteousness of Christ? Because I think a lot of times we walk around with this mentality that the rest of the world sees that conveys that it's us. That we're righteous. That we've got it right. That we're good enough. And the problem is kind of twofold. One, we're not. And two, it convinces the rest of the world that sees us that they don't belong and they're not welcome. When if truth be told, we are here simply by the grace of Jesus. And when we hold up our righteousness, not only does it send the wrong message, it detracts from where the focus should be. Right? Because your life is supposed to be a reflection of the gospel. Right? You're, you're supposed to be a mirror. You're not the main thing. Our lives reflect Christ to this world. And it's through that reflection that the world sees the blessing of our great God. If we would simply surrender and get out of the way to allow Him to shine. It's that question, what are you going to trust in? What are you going to put your hope in? And I think it brings up a really, really important question. What was the purpose of the law to begin with? Was the purpose of the law, did God give the law so that they would have a scorecard and they could prove that they were perfectly obedient all the time? Is that why he gave it? No. The reason that he gave them the law was so that they could be a set-apart people and that they could live differently from everybody else. And it wasn't to live different from everyone else so that no one else could be a part of them. It was to live differently from everyone else to provide an opportunity or a countercultural opportunity to come be a part of a different kingdom. Because the kingdoms of this world continually led to one place. 
because of the curse of sin, led to death. And this alternative kingdom from this group of people that God called to be a blessing in this world was an invitation. It wasn't, hey, I want you to perfectly get this right all the time. Because as we can see, we can't. It was to say, these people are different. These are my people. And no matter where you are, you are invited to come be a part of a different kingdom. One that doesn't always end in death and despair. That's not based on perfect obedience. And so the, the problem is they were using the law for not what it was intended. They wanted to use the law to hold it up against themselves to prove how righteous they were. Look, look how good I am. Here's the law. Look how good I follow everything. And it actually did the opposite. Right? It didn't show how righteous they were. It doesn't show how righteous we are. It shows how unrighteous we are. Why in the world would you think that is better than trusting in the work and power of Christ? And so he says this, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. The curse of sin, right? The curse of the law is what? It's death. That's how the story begins. If you eat this fruit, you will die. The curse of the law, the curse of sin, is death. But here's what you need to understand. That is a literal statement. It is not just this metaphorical statement. It's not a metaphorical statement that Christ took our sins upon Himself. It's a very literal, He took his, our sins upon Himself. Because if you ask the, the question, what is the absolute worst possible thing that the curse of sin and death could do to someone? It could be that a group of really unrighteous people took that curse and placed it squarely on the shoulders of a righteous person and let them pay the penalty for that curse. Right? It's not this metaphorical statement that Jesus took on our sins. It's quite literal. He took our sins, the sins of this world, placed upon him because Jesus lived as God's righteous image bearer and to fall under sin's curse when you're not guilty of sin 
means that sin has no power over you. Right? And in the grave, he's declared righteous. He's justified is the word that Paul uses. And so death does not get to lay claim to Jesus. And God vindicates him, raising him from the dead. Because the absolute worst thing, I mean, and I hope y'all, I know that might be a little confusing or complex, but I hope you, you kind of see the beauty of that theology. Right? That sin doesn't get to say, you're mine. Death doesn't get to say, you're mine, to Jesus. Because he was God's perfect, righteous image bearer. And Paul's question is like, why would you want to trust yourself? in your efforts rather than hide yourself in Christ. And the ultimate symbol of that curse to be hung on a tree. And he says this, and we'll kind of wrap up here. Okay, I know. Verse 14, he said this, that he is doing this, he's redeeming us so that we would receive the blessing of the promise of Abraham and so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit. That there's a, a purpose in that redemption. And so he starts with that, you foolish, foolish Galatians. Has someone bewitched you? I think we do fall back on ourselves a lot because we like to know where we stand. Um, I want to tell you a real, real quick story about the 2019 Cardinals. The, the, the Cardinals that play T-ball at Rose Capital East Little League. <laughs> so I'm a board member on Little League board, and in 2019, we started to have a lot of problems with one particular team in T-ball, to the point of we were having to call the police to have parents removed for their language. It was really, really bad. And so we did something that was just unfathomable in T-ball. We took away the scoreboard. And you know what's amazing? is we haven't had a single problem in T-ball since then because we took away the scoreboard. But it's funny because we like the scoreboard. As much as we would say we, we hate the law, we want to trust in Christ, we like the scoreboard. Because with the scoreboard, we know where we stand. With the scoreboard, we know if we're in better position than them. With the scoreboard, we can see visually where we are. But if we don't have the scoreboard, then we have to trust in something beyond what we see. And I think that's Paul's point. I know you want to trust in yourself. I know you want to trust in your ability to get it right. But it's not working. Are you willing to surrender 
and trust in the righteousness of Jesus. Because as much as you want to make yourself look righteous, you're not. But the good news of the gospel, He is. And He invites you to come to Him empty, broken, hurting, hopeless, and find life. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you so much, Father, that we, even though we aren't good enough, even though we aren't righteous, we are able to trust in your righteousness. And Father, that we can trust that Jesus took on the curse of sin and death for us to set us free from this curse of sin and death. If we would simply surrender our life to you, and hide ourselves in the righteousness. Father, we thank you. And we pray a blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen.